Well, good morning. You know, as I look out at this congregation today, particularly in light of an event that we're going to be doing in a few moments, I see two groups, two groups of people here today. I see one group, the sending group, and I see another group, the sent ones group. That is to say that one, a church plant, we see here one is related to a church plant now organized. That is those who are, of course, to remain at CPC New Haven. By organized, I don't mean established. That is, we're always establishing ourselves. I mean that we are still fluid, even still missional, but we are organized. That is to say, the other group, one, a church plant now, a mission church, not less of a church, a church with a provisional system of shepherding, where at least in a provisional sense, the church planner is also their pastor, is also their teaching elder, albeit under a provisional system of government by a mother commission session, a kind of borrowed session as it were. Today, we, the organizing church, the mother church, if you will, will send some of us to Wallingford to become a mission church. Much like a family, the sending members are as much at play as the members who are sent. Let me explain. Church planting is a bittersweet event. It is a bittersweet day to send your daughter, if you will, to college. I remember Lisa and I, when we sent our daughter to college, it was bittersweet. Of course, we wanted her to go to college. Of course, we wanted the vocation that God had given our family to be fulfilled in, in our kids. And yet we cried. This is the bittersweetness of it. To send your daughter to become a mission family, if you will. Typically more bitter for the father and mother, more sweet for the daughter. Somehow in the narrative, the mother-father sending parent can get lost in the transaction. I remember a day when, not long ago, one of us uh, married their daughter. And it was a happy event. And this person, I can't see if he's here. I won't point you out if I do. Uh, this person was put into a situation where they were asked to, I can't remember what it was, but to do something uh, that would, in effect, celebrate uh, the, the giving of the bride. And, of course, he was celebrating that. And he broke down in tears. I remember the parents who came around him after the wedding. Parents who had sent their children, their daughters, into a new family. And there was a grieving with this person even as there was celebration. That's the dynamic of this event today. And so today, the focus I'm going to make primarily, but not exclusively, on the sending community. But that's because next week, we're going to have a commissioning in Wallingford, and the focus is going to be on the sent community. Now, there's going to be interactions that are never separate but there's going to be interactions, as you'll see today in this lesson, particularly, uh, though it definitely applies to the sent community, it also applies to the sending community as well. That is, to help us focus, this passage came to mind in John 20. 
Let me read this again. I can guarantee this truth. And this is a little more of a, a translation. I can guarantee this truth. A single grain of wheat doesn't produce anything unless it is planted in the ground and dies. If it dies, it will produce a lot of grain. Those who love their lives will destroy them, and those who hate their lives in this world will guard them for everlasting life. Those who serve me must follow me. My servants will be with me wherever I go. If people serve me, the Father will honor them. This, of course, picks up a story, a story begun all the way back in Eden, a story that continued through Abraham, a story of God sending And through that, a people sending, a people leaving and going, and it's never stopped. Leaving and going, leaving and going, leaving and cleaving, if you will. And in this story is the way the kingdom of God multiplies. Multiplies as much through seed families that that send their sons and daughters to plant mission families, if you will, who will themselves produce great fruit and send, and send, and send. Just get back and think about what's going on here. Just for a moment, get beyond the circumstances and think how profound this whole thing is. And so how are we to understand this event? It seems to me this is a perfect passage. For from the vantage point of the sending ones, it feels like dying. As it is to almost hate versus love ourselves. Why would we do this? There's a real cost, a sacrifice for those who sent. They too are leaving something cherished, perhaps. Well, I would assume. And there's a sacrifice to that leaving. Why would we do such a thing? That is the death and resurrection and ascension motif that we see fulfilled in Christ and lived on by the church today. Let's pray. And so, Father, help us to process all of this in light of your mission to us, in light of your presence and the nature of your presence, in light of the way that the kingdom of God has come, in light of the greater motif of redemptive history itself. Give us vision. Give us confidence, courage, faith. Lord, do this not for our sake, but for your sake. Jesus Christ and his glory among the nations. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And so we pick up with the Greeks in our passage. These were probably Jewish proselytes coming into the temple. And they heard the context here is that there was a great commotion about this Jesus. He had risen in in fame. And so they come to Philip, one, who was a disciple of Christ. And they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. That is to say that the whole world had gone after him, according to verse 19. He was a populist. The whole world here, for the first time, included the Greeks. They are described as being among those who went up to worship at the feast. In verse 20, the reference is to people of Greek origin who as proselytes took part in the Jewish Passover. The reference, therefore, is to those who are of the nations who seek to see Jesus. Now, having heard of Jesus, his miracles, etc., they wanted to, and now I boldly say, see 
That is, to see the spectacular show. Now, we know that because every indication is that their desire to see Jesus is Jesus as a spectacle, as a glorified celebrity, a, a kind of media-hyped cultural phenom. And I stop and ask you the question, is it really so different today? We so easily confuse profundity with hype, with populism. Churches as Christ's body are also, I think, caught up in the question, sir, we wish to see Jesus. That is a big, beautiful, glorified, in worldly terms, successful Jesus. That is a Jesus great in stature as measured by the metrics of the world. Sir, we would see Jesus. Oh, we mean Jesus with great numbers of people. Jesus with a lot of money and programs and buildings and all of these things that we talk about when we say the word church. That is church, the body of Christ. The nonstop advertisements of multiple new programs with the inevitable pressure and need for more human and fiscal resources to build an ever-burgeoning church. Sir, comes the nations, we wish to see Jesus. And what are they asking for? What are we asking for when we come? Francis Schaeffer just once described the American obsession with size well in his famous 1974 essay, No Little People, No Little Places. Schaeffer's insights, I think, still ring true today. I quote, if a Christian is consecrated fully to God's service, does this mean he will be in a big place instead of a little place? As there are no little people in God's sight, so there are no little places. Nowhere more than in America are Christians caught in the 20th century syndrome of size. Size will show success. If I am consecrated there will necessarily be large quantities of people, dollars, etc., But this is not so. Not only does God not say that size and spiritual power go together, but he even reverses this, especially in the teachings of Jesus, and tells us to be deliberately careful not to choose a place too big for us. We all tend to emphasize big, but all such emphasis is of the flesh. Every time, you ask your church planner, Mike. You ask me, who, who's now planted several churches. Every time, the first question is, well, how big's your church? Every time, without exception. And every time I'm tempted, as I'm sure Mike is tempted, to first qualify. Well, you, you know, uh, New England dot, 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 and you know, uh, dot, 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 and you know, dot, 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 and it exposes my pride, exposes my worldliness, my discomfort with being small. Pastors, even like you as Christian brothers and sisters, members of a church, they would, they want the world to respect us, and in the metrics of the world, it looks big. 
The very, as Schaefer says here, the very anointing evidence of God is big. Back then to our text. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip told Andrew, and Andrew told Philip, went and told Jesus. And here is what Jesus said. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Hmm. Strange. I mean, is he capitulating finally? Is he just giving up and saying, oh, well, you know, let's just give in. Let's give them what they want. I mean, it's... Is he capitulating to the crowd's hunger for a populous, famous, bigger, greater persona in worldly terms? It's all the more strange because up until now in John's gospel, like the beating of a drum, we hear that Jesus' hour had not yet come. This is a turn in the narrative. His hour had not come. My hour has not come. Over and over he will say that. The narrator, John, says it in John 7, for instance. Then they tried to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, same kind of context. What hour? What hour? What event? What moment in the life of Jesus is John talking about? Is it that great and famous populist hour that will glorify Christ, the Messiah? And what really does it mean? For the Son of God to be glorified, therefore. Well, one thing is for sure, to perhaps set up what he will tell us, that our chapter is full of death. Our chapter is full of humiliation. Again, the religious authorities are plotting to kill Lazarus. Judas is plotting with the Pharisees to kill Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus' friend Mary has anointed him with expensive ointment that perfumes the whole house. An expensive, measured in worldly terms, wealthy ointment being put on the feet of Christ as a preparation for his death. Indeed, Death is in the air. Jesus' death is in view. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And herein, we turn to verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How so? And therein is our verse. Verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so again, we remember that the original hearers of these words, remember they had no context to process this. No knowledge of what we now know sitting in this church if you've been around the Christian uh, teachings for a while. There's no knowledge of this great and salvific sequence of events. The cross, three days, resurrection, and then ascension. There's no knowledge of that. You can imagine they're going, like my dog does, you know, like this. You know, huh? What's going on here? I don't understand. What are you saying about your glory? Indeed, this is a classic riddle. We all like riddles. 
and he will explain what the riddle means. So I'm going to notice three or four things here. can't remember which one they were. Three or four, if you're taking notes. Go ahead and write that. Three or four. Notice, first, the significance of the riddle. Very truly, I tell you, unless... Dot, dot, dot. The strong emphasis here is in Jesus' words, truly, truly, I say to you, unless... That is, whatever the riddle is about to say... It is about a non-negotiable concept pertaining to the way the gospel is to proceed. That is, it has to do with the very nature of God's salvation plan through Christ, this incontrovertible, irrefutable, non-negotiable law pertaining to the coming of the kingdom of God. I think you get it. It's the way things are, is what this riddle is all about. That is, the way things are when it comes to the kingdom of God and the way that it flourishes. Now, you just can't lose sight of what the Gospel of John is all about. The big picture, if you will. For we know that it's introduced in the language of chapter 1, verse 14, for the word became flesh and templed among us. We know that throughout the book, this is the story of how it is that Christ fulfills the temple and fills it with his glory. And yet, we know, too, that the Great Commission, like the commission in Matthew, go ye therefore out into all nations, make disciples, baptizing and and teaching them all things whatsoever to command you, and lo, I am with you, invoking that temple presence of God here John's going to be a little more explicit in chapter 20, verse 21, in his commission. He's going to say, just as the Father sent me, and the whole gospel of John has been making the point that he has sent Christ as the temple of God, just as God has sent me, so I send you, temple builders. And we find this to be true in Ephesians chapter 2, where where the apostles now are going to be described as temple builders. Go back and read it, chapter 2, verse 11 and following. Very clearly, you know, built upon the apostles, the foundation of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone, and all the language around it is about presence and temple, the very temple of God. And so we can't lose sight of the fact that if we are going to partake of the Great Commission, it's that same commission that was once given to Abraham where he leaves. He left. And where was he heading? To the promised land. That is, as it's typified in the New Testament, heaven itself. How do we get to heaven? By virtue of temple planting. Temple planting, the presence of God that goes through and around and into the world where there is this mediatorial salvific presence of God made more and more and more accessible to the world, no longer just held up in Eden area. It's to all the regions of the world by Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This commission to take the very temple presence of God into the world. And so we are talking about temple building, church planting. Second, this notice what is promised in the riddle. 
He gives you in the riddle this glory, the kind of glory. In other words, remember this is talking about the Son of Man shall be glorified. What kind of glory are you talking about, Christ? Well, let me tell you about a wheat field, says Jesus in the riddle. You know a wheat field. In Jesus' day, of course, farmers would drop one grain of wheat at a time. Remarkably, they still do it that way today with what's called a grain drill. Now, I'm not from that region of the country. I'd kind of look this up. But evidently, that's still how it's done. Out in the great breadbasket of America, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, a grain of wheat is dropped through a tube and into the trench exactly one grain at a time. The single grain decays in the earth, and then the miracle begins. And it is a miracle if you're a farmer, and Christ would know it quite well. As it sends tiny shoots, shoot hairs down into the soil, and then shoots a stem upward towards the service. And the result is remarkable if you've driven those roads. The result is remarkable, not only because a dead seed will generate life, but especially because it generates so much life. How much seed in an acre? There's a saying, two bushels of seed an acre. How much do you get back? There's a saying, 40 to 50 bushels per seed. I mean, per two bushels of seed an acre. That is to every two bushels of wheat sown per acre in top wheat-producing states like Kansas, North Dakota, and Montana, non-irrigated wheat yields are typically 30 to 50 bushels. Irrigated yields are upwards to 100 bushels. You see the point of the riddle. Two bushels of seed, 40 to 50 bushels of yield on irrigation. Now, just think about it. One acre is roughly the size of a football field, and two bushels of kernels sown into it, if a grain at a time, yields enough wheat for about 2,500 loaves of bread. One death, one dying, can result in a great harvest. The pattern is key. There is a kind of humiliation that results in glorification. There is a kind of abundant life that results from the loss of living. A fruitfulness that comes by decay. A love of life that comes by way of hating a kind of life. All intentionally paradoxical as by the riddle of the harvest. And this is immediately affirmed in what Jesus now says next. How this death as a means to much fruit is accomplished through the church. For in verse 25, he continues to explain it this way. Those who love their life will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, what is he saying? Notice, it's not that you are to hate life. That is, you're to love life to the degree that you are unwilling to die to things of this life for the greater life that awaits us. That is to say, you know where real and eternal life is. You know it's not in the two bushels of seed. It's in the bread. The 1,200 loaves of bread. That's where the flourishing is. And that's exactly what he's going to say. How it is that that this eternal life is the object of the whole redemptive history of God. 
It's not to settle down in a promised land yet. We're not there. We're in a wilderness. This is not the the hour of light. This is the hour of darkness. This is the hour, hour where there's great temptation, according to Ephesians 5, where we are as lights in the midst of the darkness. And so you see this all over the place in the Bible. I won't bore you with all of it. Over and over and over again, those who really love life, Life, love abundant life. Love life eternal. And so we're willing to lose some of this life. Lose some of our glory in this life. Lose some of our resources in this life. Lose some of our friends in this life. Lose our brothers and sisters and our daughters and our sons to this life. All of it, anything. You're not a good parent, covenantally speaking, I would argue, if you can at certain points lose your children in order to gain them in eternal life. There are significant moments in every parent where they're going to have to decide, am I going to do what is right for my child to enter into the eternal life? Or am I going to do what my child wants now by way of immediate gratification? It's the secret of the kingdom of God. It really is. We must lose now in order to gain later. And for those with a heavenly perspective, we know that's what life's all about. From Eden to Revelations, it is about the journey to life and life more abundant. It's an amazing journey. And so notice then who this riddle pertains to. Not, we're to, that is to say that we're to hate life, and, and yet that is to love life. And then he says it this way. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, verse 23. And notice now, later in verse 27, he's going to relate it to himself. He'll pick up with this theme, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he goes on to say this in verse 27. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. May it never be. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name, Father, by not taking this hour of death away. Glorify your name by humiliating me and shaming me and and making me not great and big and phenom in the eyes of the world to be forsaken, abandoned, as insignificant and inconsequential even by the world, which is probably worse. I'd rather be treated as as someone to hate, I think, than someone to view as irrelevant. And there he was, hanging on a cross by himself, in every metric of the world, irrelevant. A blip, a tiny blip, on the the secular histories of that day. Glorify your name by not taking this hour away. Glorification, just now beginning in the context of death. Glorification by death, by resurrection, and then by ascension. And so clearly we know he's talking about himself. In the way of the cross. 
He would say this, for instance, for the glory of the Son of Man is not less central in his descent than it is in his ascent. Let me say this again. The glory of Christ, the true and biblical glory of Christ, is no less glorified in in God's eyes in his descent or his humiliation or his death as it is in his ascent, his glorification, his ascension. Just give you some examples. This comes throughout John. If you've been reading it, you would know it. Perhaps the readers could go back to it. John 1, 51, and he said to them, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. John 6, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to whom? To where he was before, that is, descending. And on he'll go. I'm going away and you will search for me, but you will not Uh, but you will die in your sin. Where am I going? You cannot come. That is glory unless you die. There can be no ascent apart from the descent. That's the pattern. But it also applies to us, the church. Verse 26, right there after he says the great riddle, he says, therefore, whoever serves me must follow me in this pattern of glory. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Wherever, whoever serves me, the Father will honor. I think there it's synonymous with to glorify. Clearly, you see, it pertains to Christ in the manner of his own glorification, death as a means towards resurrection and ascension. But now we know clearly Christ has us, his church, in mind, those who would be disciples of Christ. Clearly, it pertains to those who Christ will commission in John 20, as I've already mentioned. As one sent to fulfill the temple as a means towards bringing salvation to the world, so too the apostles are charged to become temple builders. The mediatorial presence of Christ on earth, as described in Ephesians 2. And who does this then pertain to? Well, that's us. That is as much the sending church as the sent church. Clearly, Christ has us in mind. Those who would become disciples of Christ, who vow their service to his interests and his purpose of coming into this world, a purpose not to seek personal glorification, not now, but to seek the advancement of Christ's temple presence and of the salvation being made accomplished to all nations. Now, when I say all nations, let's be clear what... Matthew meant by that. Don't think of nations in political terms, like America nation versus Canada nation, etc. It's the word ethnos, and it's been described and interpreted in many ways, but it's it's pretty clear that it's an inclusive word as to mean everybody, all people types. That is, all demographics, every geography, every culture, every gender, every race. There's no bounds to where the temple must be planted. That is to make the presence of Christ as local, as efficacious in its localness and power, its accessibility as we possibly can. That's why we church plant. That's why Christ put it right here. Like a grain who must die in order to bear great fruit. The same Lord who speaks of his death goes on, therefore, to speak of ours. 
And his very pointed observation is that he will not be dying alone. We, in solidarity with Christ, die to this world. And one of the ways we do it is to plant churches, to become smaller, that the kingdom of God might multiply a hundredfold. You see, it's that way with the body of Christ, the church as well. We must die to our worldly sense of glory, our conveniences, things we can do. Verse 26 describes discipleship to Jesus' servanthood. That is one, it takes up into the work that which Jesus began. We continue it. That's incredible that he offers this privilege to us. To be Christ on earth to the world. Of course, fallibly. John 13, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God, said, very truly I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. Verse 15, I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. And he says it this way finally in verse 20 of chapter 15. Remember the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. There is a pattern here. Those who are one with Christ identify with Christ, not just in professing faith, though that's an important aspect, but in the way we live our lives, according to the pattern. So what's the take home? Well, the take home is this. It is an irrefutable law of the coming of the kingdom of God that we must die to certain things in this life in order to reap an abundant harvest in the life to come. That's really that simple. And here it is a message to those both who are being sent and those who are sending. To be sure, there are many aversions to church planting. I mean, it is sacrificial. I don't know if you've got to sign that letter yet, Mike. Have you all been able to do that yet? Tonight. Well, tonight you're going to sign a letter that's basically going to sign your soul away. No, not quite. <laughs> but basically, and I'm going to look at that letter. We, we have this letter now, but uh, my, my son, my middle son just signed a letter like that in, 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 um, in San Diego. I was, I was enthralled with what they did. I mean, it, there's money commitment. There's, you know, all these commitments. And I know y'all have been having those conversations. You know, I remember when we planted this church, we had to talk about money and how we're going to re, reinvest our, our priorities. If this church is going to be survived, we've got three or four years, man. It's all in. All in. I can remember the conversation very well, and I know you're all having the same conversations, briefing with Mike almost, what, every other week or so. Yeah kind of an all-in moment, isn't it? You know, you're it. You can't rely on, oh yeah, there's Billy Bob over there that's been that nursery worker for 10 years. We got to come up with a nursery worker. Oh no, we, you know, we got to start building elders here. We can't rely on the elders that we used to have. I mean, they're there to intervene in moments of governance, but for the most part, yeah. Mike's going to have to pick it up, man. He's going to be the visitation guy. You know, there's money involved. And it's going to take money away from this world. There's time involved. And it's going to take time away from this world. Great sacrifices. I can still see the picture of 
renovating, getting our first building and renovating it. And man, there were kids this big hauling lumber bigger than themselves. We were having to stop them from hauling that lumber. You know, just, it's just an all-in kind of thing. This church planting thing. It's a sacrifice, you know. Not so much money, not so much time in terms of ways I can spend it on my own. And, and you know, there's, there's a little bit of this too. It's kind of embarrassing. Come to my church and 15 people are sitting in the room. I don't like that feeling. You know, I like people to come to my church and say, oh, we're, we're big, we're big, we're strong. And there's a sacrifice, of course, on the sending side where it feels, and let's just be honest, like a loss, not a win. Our emotions here are emotions of grief. Let it be known. There were many uh, that have come to me about that. There's not a sense of elation. Uh, it fills the hearts of those who remain to see people who've meant so much to them and they've got to see them every Sunday and they know they won't see them every Sunday again. To be sure, they are now in another family, another congregation, under another ebb and flow of congregational life. Oh, it's true that we're all brothers and sisters. It's true that, that Nathan, who lives in Philadelphia, I mean, no, Stephen lives in Philadelphia and Nathan lives in San Diego. They're brothers, but... Oh, I remember the grieving when Stephen went off to college by the brother and sister. Yeah, they're brothers and sisters, but it'll never be the same. We know that. We're feeling it. There's an investment of life that's gone on here. People who've shared your burdens and you have shared our burdens. It's tough. And of course, it gets to the pride, it's to be humbled in outward ways versus exalted in the sorts of ways, there's no question that it takes a good amount of humility to church plant. Humility that takes a good amount of, of, of resources and numbers and control and give it away. Let me say it again. There is a humiliation, the grief of losing people we love who are sent, both those sent and more so those sending. There's a humiliation of getting smaller, not bigger, both in wealth and in numbers of people. There's a humiliation of church planning that decentralizes power by spitting off a portion of your own congregation's power and entrusting them to new leadership if you're in power or leadership here. The humiliation of intentionally setting up a competitor church with visitors may attend. You know, up until now, some of you come to this church because you're close to Wallingford and there wasn't this kind of church in Wallingford. Well, everybody in the future won't even look this church over, I hope. And that side of the brain, I hope. Because that means your church is healthy and is accessible. And they're going to flourish more with the local presence of Christ than they would here. But then on this side of the brain, S-U-C-S. That's how it feels. So I'm trying to be honest because I know you're out there thinking like that. Many of you have voiced it to me. Getting scared. It's getting a little bit uncomfortable. Fairfield. Well, first it was what? Providence. Well, that was fine. That's Providence. You know, nobody's going to drive here from Providence. And then it was Danbury. Well, that's, that's all right. Yeah, there were some people coming up here for a while, about 20 of them, if you remember, that kind of got sent out. But we all knew that that needed to happen. <laughs> then it got to Fairfield. Ouch. A couple of really people we kind of really like around here leaving us. Now Wallingford. Ouch, ouch! Now, it's good. It's all good. 
Hutchinson's brother has a book on humility, and he talks about humility in the context of church planning. And he, he references this 19th century Scottish pastor, William Sill, who recounts a story of how over the decades his ministry in Aberdeen, Scotland, had gained a bit of a reputation. In other words, his preaching was great. It had been filtering over through little pamphlets, etc. And, and wow, when people go to Scotland, they wanted to go to see this big, robust, this powerful preacher of God. And so they go to Scotland, such that visitors from North America were often, though, disappointed at how small the congregation was when they came to worship. Here's how he explained it. He explained that in part, quote, their small size was due to the work of the gospel itself. Now imagine that. To boast in the gospel is to boast small. Now, it's not that small is better in its own right, some kind of false humility or some kind of false godliness. But here's the way he put it. He explains that in part their great size was due to the work of the gospel itself, causing many of his congregation to leave for the mission field, just that they had a hard time keeping together a working nucleus. That is the sign, he says, of a life-giving church, one that is constantly sending out its people and resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. That is the irrefutable, non-negotiable way for the kingdom of God to flourish, you see. It's true. Church planning is an effective mission strategy. It's the most effective of all. And I won't go into the stats that prove it, but there are many stats that prove it. You want to see avert conversions? Church plant. Bring it local. But it's also, may you be surprised, one of the greatest ways for church renewal. But it's one that requires death. Do we at CPC need renewal, do you think? Are we praying for revival, resurrection power? Have those themes come around here very much recently? Well, how are we going to get it? Well, it is true The vigorous, and I'm quoting Tim Keller, continual planning of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy, one, for the numerical growth of the body of Christ. If you mean that, not by congregational growth, but by kingdom of God growth. But it's also a renewal strategy. For the continual corporate renewal and revival of existing churches, nothing else, not crusades, not outreach programs, not parachurch ministries, growing megachurches, congregational consulting, nor church renewal processes, I'm quoting Tim Keller here, none of those have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planning upon the mother church. Why? Because just like there's a document, I'm thinking about getting one of these documents and putting it in the session as something we sign every time we, sign a ch- we, we plan a church. But just as they're signing a document saying, man... I mean, I'm looking over there, and I see a beautiful family that I love. Yep, you the Browns, and I think of my life with you and my history with you. I'm grieving. And then some of you look at you and you say, she was a dang good nursery coordinator. And we're losing it. And then others are going to say, and I'm just picking on you for a minute. I could pick on all of you that are leaving. That's right. We're going to have to pick it up. We're going to have to die to some worldly conveniences that 
that allowed certain, we had a big enough congregation with a small enough sort of program uh, uh, imprint that we could, we could have a little leftovers. There's some who've, well, I've done that before. You need renewal. There's some who, well, I don't have time for that. You know, I'm not there yet in my spiritual life. Well, you need renewal. And how are you going to get it? It's an odd thing. It's the, it's the irrefutable, non-negotiable principle of the kingdom of God. You must die to be renewed, to be restored, to be rebirthed. It's going to require a sacrifice. It's just that simple. I just started this wretched diet plan. I know I need it. You know I need it. Please pray for me. I'm unhealthy and I need to be healthier, period. It's going to happen. Got into this keto thing, right, with, with Sejan. Already. It's been a couple of days now, three days. Dang. You know? No more beer? No more chocolate? Chocolate cake? Oh, that bread, that good bread that Lisa brings home? Yeah. Give it up and watch my body flourish. Watch my body become healthy again. Now, I just totally set myself up for a really bad experience here. I mean, just don't be watching it too bad, okay? It's, I don't know. We'll see. But you see what I'm saying? I think you do. This is a great day. It's a great day for those who are being sent as they partake of one grain in the ground that result in a big harvest. And it's a great day for us who send them. Yeah, a grieving day, but a great day. Because we need it. We need it. We need to get that little sheet that they're signing. We need to get one like for us and say, those who are sending, we commit to, yep, a little more money. A little more time. A little more prayer. A little more sense of urgency. Because this is also one of those mission churches. Never established. If indeed we are partaking of the kingdom of God.